If you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We began in Hebrews last week, and we only got through the first three verses, actually. This Sunday, we're going to get all the way to the end of chapter 1. And it's already 11.30, so it's probably going to take a little bit longer than 12. Amen to that for sure. (laughs) In fact, I'm not going to say everything that I could say, or we'd be here at 1. First, we saw last week that the overarching message of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Remember, the word Hebrews so often uses is superior. Um, Remember that some of the Hebrew Christians dispersed out in the Roman world were being persecuted and suffering for their faith in Christ, for their profession of Jesus. They were being persecuted and shunned first by their Jewish kinsmen. They weren't allowed in the synagogues anymore. They were being shunned from their families, those kind of things. But by this time, by the time of the writing of Hebrews, uh, persecution had kicked up in Rome as well. So, And the Roman authorities were persecuting them as well. Um, following Jesus for these Hebrew Christians had made life more difficult for them. And all they had to do to make life better was just go back to Judaism, go back to the old religion, to the law, the ceremony, the sacrifices, the rituals, go back to Judaism. If they were to do that, they would spare themselves. (coughs) Excuse me, the bread is still there. (coughs) If they were to do that, wow, they would spare themselves from all this hardship and all this trial. At the time, Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And so going back would spare them from their families and their synagogues and all of the people that had shunned them. Also spare them from persecution from Rome. The book of Hebrews is written to say, don't go back. Don't turn away from Christ to follow the old religion or the old way. He is better. Even in the face of all of your suffering and all of your trials and all of your hardship, Jesus is better than all that. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant religion. It all pointed to him. He's better than Moses, better than the priest, better than the temple, better than the sacrifices. You can't go back. You can't turn away from him, even to religion. Jesus has fulfilled it all. And we saw that truth last week that no matter, hey, thanks, Matt. No matter, excuse me. No matter what you're tempted to turn toward, everything else, everything else pales in comparison to the glorious, beautiful, sufficient Jesus. And we saw that last week in the first three verses. He's the radiance of God's glory, the perfect imprint of his nature. And so we were shown his glory and his majesty. We were shown that in Jesus, in the Son, God has spoken finally and definitively to us in these last days. It says in verse 1. Now in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Hebrews is going to show us that Jesus is better than the most glorious of heavenly creatures, the angels. Verse 3 told us, after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And starting in verse 4, it says this, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then from 5, verse 5, to verse 14, 
he proves what he just said in verse 4 with seven Old Testament quotations. He said, for to which of the angels did God ever say, here's a quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, meaning this is what he also says of the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, meaning the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Now, that's a whole lot. In these verses, it's seven Old Testament quotes, and he's showing that Jesus is better than the angels. If you got lost in the details of that, so did the first service. I'm sorry, it just happens. Uh, this is going to be very dense, and it's going to be very um, hard to keep up with. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to try my best. So if you get lost, don't tune out. Just grab on when I come back around. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to give you the big picture first. I'm going to give you the whole argument. I'm going to give you where it's going, and I want you to see what we're trying to get to first, and then I'm going to break it down and show you the details. Are you with me? Please be with me. Okay, that's all I can ask for. All right. Our first question when we read this, this chapter about angels and all these quotations and all of these sayings and all of these things, our first question needs to be, why is this here? Now, how does saying Jesus is better than the angels make the point that the Hebrews should not turn away from Jesus and go back to the old covenant law, to the old covenant rituals, the ceremonies and Judaism and all that stuff. We are given the answer to that question in the very next section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're not going to preach that today. We're going to preach it next week, but I'm going to read it to you. Here's the answer to the question. This is where the writer comes to his point. All of this Jesus is better than the angels talk leads to chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, therefore. So you got 5 through 14 in chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. And this quote, and this quote, and this quote, and this quote, he's better than the angels. And because he's better than the angels, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For, because, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, okay, what message is he talking about right there? He's talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about the covenant, the old covenant. He's talking about the law of Moses. We must pay closer attention to what we've heard, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and then he defines the message saying, Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What's he talking about there? It's not rhetorical. I'm asking. 
He's talking about the law. He's talking about when you transgress, every disobedience, receive retribution. He's talking about the law. He said, if that message declared by angels was reliable and you know that every transgression received retribution, he says, how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And he says, this salvation was declared at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard. Now, see what he's saying? Jesus is better than angels, verses 5 through 14. Therefore, because Jesus is better than angels, we need to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, not drift from it. Because if the message declared by angels was reliable and every broken law received retribution, he says the message declared first by the Lord is our message of salvation. How can we escape if we neglect it? Are you with me? Okay, that's the big picture. That's where all this is going. That's why we have this big, huge, long thing about Jesus is better than the angels. But that leads to another question, doesn't it? If the message declared by angels is the Old Testament law, Mosaic covenant, Judaism, the way it's practiced, what do angels have to do with the giving of the law? And the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and Judaism and all those things. What he's referring to is the fact that angels accompanied the giving of the law to Moses at, at Mount Sinai. And they were seen as the ultimate messengers of God. You can see that in Deuteronomy 33.2. This is Moses speaking. He's actually singing. He's the song of Moses. And he talks about God coming to Sinai. And he says, he came, God came to Sinai from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And that is the angels. You can also see this in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen is about to be stoned to death, he gives this long sermon and recounts Israel's history. And in 738, he says about Moses, this is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received oracles to give to us. And we just went through Galatians. We saw it in Galatians 3. Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions unto the offspring, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Intermediary there is Moses. So you with me? Okay. So the big picture is this. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets who spoke before. And he's better than the angels by whose message we have the law, the Old Testament, the ultimate messengers of God. He is greater than them. So the writer of Hebrews is showing us that the, Jesus is the Son of God who brought the final fulfillment of the promise. You can't go back to the old religion, even if it was mediated by angels, God's highest messengers. The Hebrew, to the Hebrews, he's saying, Jesus is better. This would have been a compelling argument to the Hebrews. It's, it's, it's more difficult for us to realize what's going on at the time. So that's the big picture. Don't go back to the old religion. Don't go back to going through the motions. Don't go back to the rituals and the ceremonies and the spirituality and all of the things. Don't turn away from Jesus. He is better. So now we're going to dive into the details. And I was told by someone who loves me very much this morning that my sermon was boring. So I agreed. I was preaching it and I was bored. 
but you're going to have to, this is what's next. This is what expository preaching is. We don't, I don't skip nothing. So we're going to do this. And if it's boring, it's not because the word is boring. It's because Jason is boring. So let's get into the details of this. First thing he tells them is Jesus is better because he is God, the son who is worshiped by angels. He says back in verse four, remember he said the last thing he said was Jesus inherited a more excellent name than the angels. Then in five through 14, he proves this from the scriptures. He says, for which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes Psalm 2-7. I put the references up on the screen so you wouldn't have to write them down as I say them. He quotes Psalm 2-7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2-7. Now Psalm 2 is about the nations rebelling against God and his anointed one whom in that psalm he calls son. And in Psalm 2, God declares that the Son reigns over all. In fact, He tells the nations and the rulers of the world to kiss the Son lest He be angry with you. So in quoting this verse, Hebrews is making the point, nowhere does God ever give the divine title of Son to any angel. Now the whole company of angels is sometimes called the sons of God in the Bible, but no angel has ever been singled out as the heir, as David's heir, the anointed son. But the father has said this of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is better because he is the son. Now some use this phrase, today I have begotten you in Psalm 2-7 and in Hebrews 1-5. To say that, well, see, it happened at a point in time. Jesus was really just a man, like any other. And then at a point in time, God endowed him with a divine nature. That's not the case. Jesus is God the Son from all eternity. He has always been God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. But the Son took upon himself a human nature. And he lived perfectly according to the law of God, gave his life on the cross to pay for sin, gave his life on that cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and he was enthroned as the Son. And what is new now is that he is not only enthroned as God, he's enthroned as God and man. So the title, Son of God, refers to Jesus really in three ways. He's always been God the Son from eternity past. He became God the incarnate Son when he took upon himself a human nature. And now, after the ascension, he is enthroned and exalted as the divine Son who is both God and man. Are you with me? Yes. Okay, good. I won't do that again. The point being made is that no angel has ever been or could ever be called the Son of God in this way. And then in verse 5, he quotes 2 Samuel 7, 14. He says, for which of the, the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that's Psalm 2. Or again, meaning for which of the angels has he ever said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, 2 Samuel 7, 14. This quote comes from a passage in 2 Samuel that's often called the Davidic Covenant. It's the covenant made with David. It is what the prophet Nathan tells David, or what God tells the prophet to tell David. 
That after your death, David, your son will build a house for God. And God will establish your throne, David, forever and ever and ever. And of course, you know the story. David's son Solomon failed to be faithful. He did build a house for God, but he failed to be faithful, as did all of the other heirs of David. So the later prophets looked forward to a greater son of David who would fulfill this prophecy. Israel's hope was the future fulfillment of David's heir in a future king, a Messiah who would come. So the writer of Hebrews applies this prophecy, this truth, this son of God to Jesus. No angel's ever been told that by God, he shall be my son. But that is what God has said of Jesus. Jesus is David's heir. Jesus is the Messiah, the very son of God. But look at what God has told the angels. They're commanded to worship the Son. Verse 6, he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 43. If Jesus is not God, then the Father is commanding the angels to commit idolatry. Now, if you turn your Bible, don't do this, but I mean, you can if you want to, I don't care. But if you turn your Bible to Deuteronomy 32, 43, in your English Bible, it says, bow to him, all you gods, or worship him, all you gods. But the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what is quoted all throughout Hebrews, says, bow to him, worship him, all you sons of God, which is why it says, all God's angels. So the writer is showing us Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to the angels. Even though you guys think the angels are the ultimate messengers of God, Jesus' message is better because Jesus is higher and superior than even these glorious angels. Even the angels worship the Son, and indeed they do. In Revelation 5, 11, it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, look who they're worshiping. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is the Son of God to be worshiped by all. And remember the application that we looked at in the big picture at the beginning, given in chapter 2, verse 1. Since Jesus is better than the angels, since he is to be worshipped by all, worshipped even by the angels, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. The gospel. Jesus is better. Next, the writer demonstrates that Christ is superior to the angels by showing that they are servants and Jesus is enthroned as king over all. Verse 7 says, of the angels, he says this. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. Now, angels are glorious beings for sure. At the command of God, they perform miraculous feats beyond our imagination. Angels are powerful and glorious. In fact, we really have a misconception about angels today. You know, first of all, it's, they're not little fat kids in diapers shooting arrows and stuff. And they're not 
Della Reese showing up in your bedroom and that show touched by an angel and all that kind of stuff. You know, granting wishes and, and all the kids like Della who? <laughs> Angels are scary. If you saw one, you'd be terrified. When they appear to people in the Bible, most often, more often than not, their first words have to be, don't be afraid. In Genesis 2, angels rescued Lot, called down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. In Samuel 24, verses 15 through 17, one angel struck down 70,000 people in Israel because of David's sin. One single angel in one single night killed 185,000 Assyrians in Isaiah 37. Oh, angels are fearful awesome, glorious beings. But at the very core of what they are and who they are, they're just created beings, servants of God. In, both, in fact, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word angel literally means messenger. So as powerful and glorious as angels are, they're just servants of God. In fact, the line quoted from this Psalm 104.4 in verse 7 of Hebrews 1 says they are his angels, his ministers. Now remember, I don't have all the verses up, but I hope you have your Bible in your lap and you're looking at Hebrews 1. This is the father speaking of his son. When he brings his son, firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels. He's talking about the son. They are the son's servants. The angels serve Jesus. They carry out the commands of their king. Their task is one of service, but the son rules. Look at verse 8. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's a quote from Psalm 45, 6 through 7. The Son is God who rules upon the throne. And His throne is forever and ever. No other confession is sufficient to rightly speak of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that he is King of kings and he is Lord of lords and even the angels, as glorious as they are, they worship him. They are his servants, his ministers, but of the Son, the Father says, look at it, God the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. And then it says, God, your God. It's the Father and the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever. Jesus is declared to be God and to rule on the throne by God the Father himself. That has never been said of an angel. And we're told that the scepter of his kingdom is uprightness because he's loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That is who this king is. The perfect son Righteous and holy. Psalm 45 is actually a psalm celebrating the wedding of a Hebrew king. 
But the writer of Hebrews introduces this quote of Psalm 45 as God the Father speaking to God the Son himself. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's who he is, the perfect son, righteous and holy. And both of these things are necessary to be righteous, to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. To love righteousness is defined by hating wickedness. Those two things can't be separated. Sometimes we have a problem with this. We, we have a problem uh, because, you know, we don't have any problem loving righteousness. You know, we... It's okay, we, it's easy to love righteousness, but at the same time, we sure don't mind a little sin here and there. To love righteousness is to hate wickedness. And that's who Jesus is in his nature. Jesus demonstrated his righteousness and his, and his hatred for wickedness as he dwelled among men. But both of these realities are, are most fully expressed at the cross. It was there at the cross that God's hatred of wickedness was poured out in wrath on the Son for sin. It was there that, that God's righteousness was upheld as he punished sin on the cross. Wickedness was so abhorrent to God, hated by God, that his holy wrath was poured out upon his own Son. And it was at the cross that Jesus' righteousness completely and perfectly satisfied the justice of God because Jesus is the perfect and holy sacrifice. And because that is the nature of God the Son, and we are also told that God the Father anointed the Son with this oil of gladness in that sacrifice, we can have gladness. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. But the Son, right now, at the right hand of the Father, having completed His salvation work, they're interceding for us, reigning on the throne. The Son is forever joyful. Forever joyful in this victory that He's won. And because of that fact, we who are united with Him, we can be joyful and victorious, even in the hardships and the trials and the sufferings and the persecutions of this life. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can run the race with endurance, even in suffering, because we depend on Jesus who endured the cross, knowing that joy and victory would be the result Jesus is better, not just because he is the prophet who speaks, he is the true priest who saves, he's better because he is the true king who rules, and he is God of all creation. To show this, the writer quotes Psalm 102, 25 through 27, and, which is a continuation of verse 10, and of the, of the son, he says this, and of the Son, he also says this, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. It was the Son who laid the foundation of the earth, who created the heavens. And then we're told that the Son is eternal. He is unchangeable. 
all this creation will perish. It will, it will wear out, be rolled up like a garment. But it says, you are the same. He's speaking of Jesus. We're told that again in Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's two things that you need to understand about Psalm 102 real quickly. It's not going to be real quick, but i got to say that to make you feel better. If you go back and read Psalm 102, it's a prayer. It's a prayer of an afflicted, suffering person who is pouring out his complaint before God. The psalmist is enduring trial and hardship, and the whole first part of Psalm 102 just describes the torment and the, and the hardship that he's going through, the suffering that he's going through. But in his weakness, in Psalm 102, in his weakness and his desperation, the psalmist lifts his, lifts his eyes to the Lord, and he says, yes, I'm suffering and I'm going through all this, but I know you are the creator, you are the foundation, you remain the same, and all of this creation will pass away but you are God alone he's looking to God saying you are my only hope in this suffering you are my only pleasure in this suffering he says though heaven and earth will perish you will remain in the psalm the writer is speaking of Yahweh of Israel's God but here the author of Hebrews applies this psalm directly to Jesus and second the writer of Hebrews says that this quote from Psalm 102 is God the Father speaking to the Son? If you remember back in verse 8, it started saying, but of the Son, he says, and then verse 10 says, and, meaning he also says this. But when you read Psalm 102, you discover it's the psalmist speaking. It's not God. But the author of Hebrews sees no contradiction in saying what the psalmist said is what God himself says. To the author of Hebrews, all of the scriptures are the voice of God. And make sure you don't miss the application. To this Jewish church who's struggling and being persecuted, Jesus is better than the angels because he's the creator, he's the unchanging God. That's not just a theological truth for you to wrap your mind around, uh, uh, around and, and ponder deeply. It's a comfort to them in the midst of their trials and their persecution and their suffering. This same eternal creator who sustained the psalmist through his trial and his affliction is the very Jesus who will sustain you. Don't turn away from him. Their world was falling apart and they were enduring unimaginable hardships because they were followers of Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the same. He's eternal and unchanging. He is better Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, he's worthy of your trust, even in your hardship, even in your suffering, even in the mess of life, even when following him doesn't seem like it's to any worldly advantage to you at all. Jesus is enough. And finally, he says that God the Son is this victorious king already. This list of Old Testament citations ends in chapter 1 with a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? In fact, this, this text, this Old Testament passage, Psalm 110.1, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Even Jesus himself quoted it and applied it to himself in his trial in Mark chapter 12. 
And the point here is that as glorious and as powerful as they may be, no angel has ever been invited to sit at the right hand of God. Now, we talked about what sitting at the right hand of God meant last week, to sit on the very throne of God. Jesus is seated, ruling. The angels hurry about in service to God. Christ is ruling on the throne. And notice the promise that's embedded here. There's a promise of ultimate victory. He says, sit at my right hand until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. There's an assurance that though this Hebrew church is struggling and enduring hardship and persecution and suffering, Christ's enemies will not prevail. One day every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Even the good and the evil angels will do so. Every being in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, it says in Philippians, will bow to this Lord of glory. They'll either do so in worship or they'll do so as they're conquered. The writer of Hebrews is using the psalm to remind the Christians that Jesus is better because though the battle is raging in your life right now, he's already the victorious king. He will conquer those enemies who rail against the gospel, persecute the people of God. He will conquer the fallen creation that is filled with suffering and pain and sin and crying and tears. His enemies will not win. Jesus is better. Don't turn away from him. After showing the supremacy of Christ as the Son of God, the enthroned King, the eternal Creator, the victorious Conqueror, the writer of Hebrews again reminds the church that the angels are just servants. Verse 14, he says, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve? Look at it. For the sake of those who inherit salvation. By serving Jesus, the angels also serve those who are being saved by Jesus. The message to these Christians who were afraid, who were despairing, who were trembling at the notion that life is filled with suffering because I follow Jesus. There's persecution and hardship and trial and all of this is coming at me at every different angle. He's telling them rather than going back to the law to try to save yourself this persecution, which was the message declared by angels. Turn to Jesus because his angels are sent out to serve you. He's telling them, Jesus is the Lord of glory and the angels obey his will. So yes, you're suffering. Yes, you're in trial. Yes, you're being persecuted and all that. But you must understand if he wills, he can deliver you anytime he wishes. These powerful angels are the servants of the one who loves you. Christ is better than all else. He's sufficient in your hour of need. You must not turn from him. You must trust him with all that you are. Chapter one is this big, long, huge, dense, detailed argument. It's easy to get lost in the details and all the quotes and all that stuff. It's easy to forget the whole point of this section. Remember the application. It's in chapter two, verse one and two, or verse one through four. Jesus is better because he's better than the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift from it. Defiantly or intentionally turning away, which the writer of Hebrews talks about many times in this book, is not the only danger. We must fix our eyes upon Jesus, turn our hearts to treasure Jesus so that we do not drift 
away. Today, there may be some here who have been drifting in their walk with God. It happens so easily. Neglecting to focus on the gospel. Instead, trusting or hoping in just a generic spirituality or good works or religious practices. Going through the motions. It happens when we toy around with worldliness or sin. It happens slowly, almost imperceptibly. You know, you know, quit reading your Bible, quit praying regularly. You, the point is quit spending time in the presence of God. You neglect to turn your eyes and heart to Jesus in wonder and awe and worship. Neglect worshiping Him, living for Him. And after a time, you find yourself cold, unmoved by the things of God anymore. If that's you, turn your eyes to this glorious sun. See him in all his glory and radiance. Look to him and rekindle the, the, the sense of awe and joy and love and trust as your mind dwells upon the radiance of God's glory who is the sun, the perfect imprint of his nature who is the sun. Is he your God and Savior today? Is he your master? Is he your treasure or is he simply something that you've added to your life for insurance so you don't have to go to hell? Is Jesus enough for you? That's what Hebrews is asking. If everything was taken away from you, absolutely everything, and Jesus is all that you are left with, is he enough? Church, he's not only enough, he's better. He's more. He's more excellent than every other thing and all other things combined. No matter what happens in this life, the last line of Psalm 2 holds true. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I don't know if I was able to make it very clear, but I pray that just the word that we have read from your scripture, God, your spirit would take that word which is inspired and errant and it would apply it to our hearts, that we would see you as better. Jesus, that we would see you as our treasure, our heart's treasure. God, we don't have a problem thinking and knowing that you are higher than the angels. But God, our hearts are turned away from you by so many other things. God, we pray that you would just rekindle in us that awe and wonder of the gospel and of Jesus and of the one whom our soul loves, the treasure of our hearts, God, and that we would love you, serve you, follow you. God, that we would bask in your presence. You are worthy of all glory, honor, blessing, and praise. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them to you, that they would see the beauty of what you have done in the horrible cross and the majesty and the magnificence of the resurrection as you died for sin, Jesus, and as you rose from the grave for our justification. Lord, you are truly the Lord of all glory, deserving of all praise. God, I pray that they would call out upon you for salvation, entrust their lives to you, and be saved. Thank you, God, for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. I'd love to pray with you if you want to come. Will you stand with me?